here. My name is Katie Balukas and I'm a senior manager at Barry Dunn in the not-for-profit practice group. I'm excited to be today's host as we continue to dive into all things not-for-profit. Today's topic is going to be focused on accounting and tax treatment as it relates to contributions. A little bit about me, I'm a senior manager at Barry Dunn and I spend my time performing audit and consulting services for not-for-profit and governmental organizations. I'm joined today by Emily Parker and Joe Byrne. Emily, Joe, please introduce yourselves. Hi, Katie. Uh, my name is Emily Parker. I'm a principal in Barry Dunn's not-for-profit practice group. I've been auditing and consulting with nonprofits since about 2004. Joe? Hi, everyone. Joe Byrne, Senior Tax Manager in the Not-for-Profit Tax Group at Barry Dunn. I've been with the firm since 2005, and I have been working in the nonprofit field for about 12 of those 18 years. Uh, it's great to be with everyone again. Um, one thing I would say is, you know, after we recorded our last podcast about year-end giving, uh, we started talking more about how complicated contribution accounting can be for nonprofit organizations. Yes, we have uh, development offices. We often get questions from our clients about how accounting departments and development offices, development officers can uh, better collaborate and how development officers can get a better understanding of what's required for accounting goals. You know, the number one thing that we recommend is that they reconcile the development databases with the accounting records, uh, especially in the cases with things like pledges and receivables. We know there is different accounting treatment required for the business office than there is for development. There's good reason for that. We can talk more about that. But the, um, the real thing that's important is knowledge sharing and um, reconciling of information back and forth. I know, for example, development databases are really helpful in things like tracking pledges, um, tracking bequests, things like that. Also, your 990 information, your Schedule B is often pulled from the development database. Right, Joe? Definitely. We are often working with development teams on that Schedule B uh, for the 990 and, and just a couple of PSAs here. So your general rule for 990 reporting is going to be any donor of $5,000 or more. Uh, to the organization during the year, we would need their name, their address, and the amount that they contributed. In the case of a non-cash gift, we would actually need a little bit more information, which is typically what the gift was, some level of a description, and the date that it was provided. Um, one other thing here I will point out, because it, it very often comes up during the 990 process and Schedule B, because we just quickly touched on pledges, uh, Schedule B is reported on the same accounting method as are your audited financial statements. So in the year that a pledge is made, regardless of whether or not any payments were made on that pledge, that is the year that the donor goes on Schedule B. Um, so if in year zero, donor pledges a million dollars, we put the donor on Schedule B in that year for the $1 million. In subsequent years, when they make payments of over $5,000 on said pledge, the donor does not go on Schedule B again. So it's something that's really important to note. We sometimes get the question, Joe, about, you know, we had a donor give four contributions of $4,000 each. How does that hit the Schedule B? 
<laughs> well, uh, good question. And there's actually a little nuance to this in the instructions, um, which I, I will share. So what the Schedule B instructions say is that you are to aggregate together any contributions that are over $1,000. So hypothetically, and I've never actually seen this in practice before, but hypothetically, a donor could make $999 contributions every day of the year. And they wouldn't technically need to go on Schedule B. Now, again, I don't know anybody who's actually doing that, but there is a little nuance in the rules about contributions and aggregating those that are $1,000 or more and kind of totaling them all up when you're arriving at your Schedule B total. Yes. Well, that's some great information about really how our development clients' development offices should be tracking gifts as well as really how it correlates with the Schedule B that's required for the 990 but we do see some very common missteps in this area as we're working with our clients. One of the big ones that I feel like we see very frequently are unintended restrictions as it relates to fundraising materials. We see this a lot as it relates to capital campaigns where they're worded in such a way that if the capital that they're fundraising for does not exceed the fundraising contributions that have come in, those in essence will get tracked. And so that's certainly something that as an audit firm or working with your own audit firm, we're available as a resource to review your materials before they're published, just to verify that you do not have any unintended restrictions listed within those materials. We can certainly be a resource before those go out to donors, before you start collecting those contributions and really being in an unfavorable position once you start receiving the contributions. Um, another area that Emily had alluded to that we see some confusion with from a development officer office perspective is tracking gifts that really aren't considered revenue yet under GAAP. Um, we see this if someone lists the organization in their will, they have not received any actual contributions at that point, so there's no actual revenue to be recorded. Um, another area could be if there's a match contribution. A donor could say, if you raise $100,000, I'll match that with another $100,000 contribution. There has not been any type of exchange of funds Obviously, the $100,000 is not guaranteed as it's contingent on your organization fundraising $100,000. So that's something that will be important as you're working with doing a reconciliation between the two databases is there will be differences between the two, being able to explain those differences, but you will expect to see some differences in those two databases. I think that's really an important point. Uh, the fact that there are differences between the development database and the accounting records is okay. We want development to be tracking everything that they can. You know, they need credit for all of the hard work that they're doing to develop these relationships and these donations. The accounting guidance just has some pretty specific things that we need to keep in mind. So there are some things development offices can do to make accounting departments lives a little bit easier as far as language, for example. You gave a great example around capital campaigns, Katie. And I, you know, I've seen in the past when we, our clients will send us their capital campaign literature before they begin, which we, we really like the opportunity to work with them before they begin their campaigns. Because sometimes there's one slight shift in language that can make their lives easier for a long time, really, candidly, because we know capital campaigns come as uh, often their pledges or promises to give. Um, and so you're accounting for those for many years as, as you look to, to bring those in-house. I can think of one example where um, 
a development office have put together some really beautiful literature, but some of the language they had used around donations included words like intention, like we intend to use the money this way, or the pledge form might've said, I intend to give you this amount of money over a certain number of years. And something that's an intention is traditionally or generally not, uh, considered an unconditional promise to give. And for accounting purposes, you generally wouldn't include that as revenue until the cash is collected. And that was not, you know, to use overuse the word, that was not the intention of the development office. They just weren't aware of some of these nuances. So all that is to say, there are a lot of things around the accounting for donations that if we all work together as a team, um, your business office and your development office, then you can really make your lives easier in the long term. So the big question to me would then be, what do we recommend in order to avoid those common pitfalls? Definitely. I mean, the first one, like Katie said, provide um, documentation to your auditor or consultant, someone who's got the accounting expertise to take a quick look at that and just provide you any high level considerations. Also, I really recommend you share your documentation between the development office and the accounting office. Sometimes we hear from our clients in the accounting department that they don't necessarily see some of the larger agreements until long after they need to be accounted for. And so it's hard for the accounting office to get that right without the right documentation. So we really recommend that there's an open conversation between those departments. Um, and there are, there are things that you can do if, if you make mistakes around accounting treatment for donations, you know, for example, in the example I gave um, around intentions, there are things you can do, but they often to be sure those are recorded in the way you intended them to be recorded, but it quite often involves having to reach back out to your donors or even perhaps the attorney general's office if you can't reach out to your donors. And we all know those relationships are really important and, you know, some of that communication you wanna be sure you get right the first time. So, Joe, I know language matters for you, too. And um, we talk throughout the year, it feels like every year we talk a little bit about accounting for grants and the way that's treated on the 990. I, I would say once a year is a bit of an understatement. I think Emily and I have had this conversation many times, not just with Emily, but other auditors as well. And it's it's the treatment of government grant income for the 990. Um when you look at the 990 instructions, there's actually a pretty decent sized write-up on government grant income. And it's really what it whittles down to is the the, the the answer that accountants almost always give, which is it depends. It's it's very facts and circumstances specific as to how government grant income gets treated on a 990. Um, what we're really looking for, and you often need to look at the grant agreement or talk to the auditors or talk to the client, but if the government or any sort of outfit is you know, giving money just for the general running or funding of your programs, that's typically going to be contribution income in nature. However, if you are receiving government grant funds that are earmarked for specific individuals that you're serving, we look at this as more of a fee-for-service arrangement, then the government grant income for 990 purposes is supposed to be treated as program service revenue and not as a contribution or a donation. And, you know, the reason why there's some ambiguity, and it's just kind of the difference between the two worlds, I think, is when you look at a set of financial statements, it just says government grants or grant income. And it's really on the tax folks to, to take a deeper dive and go, okay, we have grant income. 
let's look a little bit closer at this and determine is this really a contribution income or is this more program service revenue in nature? Um, so that's the big delineation there. Um, the other area where we see some issues that I, I feel like I should bring up here in this conversation is in the area of fundraising events. Um, lots of organizations, especially during COVID, but even before COVID, but fundraising events are, are a, a, a tool that many nonprofit organizations use. These are your golf tournaments, the dinner dance, um, the gala ball event, you know, all, all those sorts of events that help generate revenue and get good word of mouth out there for your organization. There are some rules that I want to point out here, um, kind of piggybacking off of our last episode in regards to donor acknowledgments, for example. Um, you know, if you attend an event and there's a rule there, if, if you pay $75 or more in a quid pro quo arrangement where you're paying more than $75, say, for a ticket, and then you are entitled to dinner and drinks and maybe a goodie bag at the end of the night, that information is supposed to be relayed to the payors of the event, the attendees, that you paid us this much and you received this much in exchange. And the trigger for that, again, is a payment in excess of $75. Um, so just keep that in mind. And that should be noted in your donor acknowledgement. Example, somebody pays $100 to go to your event. That's the ticket price. And they receive... $50 of items or food and drink in exchange, that should be noted to them, to the to the payor, uh, attendee of the event. And, you know, you just sort of say, please see your tax advisor, but the goods and services you received were, were, were $50 or $25, whatever the case may be. Um, depending on the size of your fundraising event, uh, if you had $15,000 or more in gross income, you actually do need to complete Schedule G, uh, for your fundraising event. Uh, so keep that in mind. We have a whole separate table spreadsheet that we provide to clients to help provide us with this information. Um, one other area with fundraising events, and I, I smell a future podcast in our, uh, in, in our midst here, um, is in the realm of gaming activity. I often see with a fundraising event that there's some sort of an accompanying 50-50 raffle or something to that, you know, uh, something like that. A 50-50 raffle or any sort of raffle is actually a gaming activity. And on its face, it's gaming activity is an unrelated business income activity. Um, I think in a future podcast, we might want to talk a little bit about how it's uh, ways to avoid UBI treatment on that gaming activity, but just be aware that that income, so if you have, you know, usually just fundraising event income, X portion of that is raffle money. That's actually supposed to be broken out separately on your 990 and shown as gaming. So just something to be aware of there. And, and if anybody pays to participate in the gaming activity, like they buy a raffle ticket, no portion of that is deductible as a tax, you know, a charitable contribution. It does sound like a, a good future podcast. So I think we'll put that one in the book. So keep your ears out for that one. Um, the other thing I want to be sure we talk about is how the board will play a part in the donation and fundraising realm. You know, boards of directors are often a committee around significant fundraising activity, and they get regular reports from the development office. So they're used to seeing numbers that include things that may not be included in your financial statements. So we do get questions when we when we speak with board members about why are these different? Is that something I should be concerned about? Um, and really my 
we're happy to explain to boards why there would be differences and should be differences. You know, the development office is going to give you everything they're aware of that they feel comfortable about. That's part of them, the development office, being able to meet their own goals. So that's completely appropriate. But a little bit of uh, pre-education of board members about this is the number of developments reporting. Accounting will be different because of, you know, some of the things we've talked about today. That really can uh, save you a little bit of time and potential discomfort from the board members when they look at the numbers. I think we hit the high points, Katie. What do you think? Yes, yes, definitely. I think we have a lot of good information in this podcast. So I thank everyone for listening to us and please be on the lookout for our next podcast.